Watch this. Deuteronomy 16 and 21. Follow along as I read. Thou shalt not plant thee a grove of any trees near unto the altar of the Lord thy God, which thou shalt make thee. Thou shalt not plant thee a grove of any trees near unto the altar of the Lord thy God, which thou shalt make thee. Say these words. Say, no shadows on the altar. You may be seated. It was approximately 100 years ago the people of France gifted the United States of America with a centennial gift. It resides in Upper New York Bay. She stands over 151 feet tall, this gift. She weighs in at over 225 tons. This gift given to the United States was in recognition of the friendship established during the American Revolution. And over the years, she has grown to include freedom, liberty, hope, and international refuge. The Statue of Liberty, that's how you know her. That symbol of America at its best. Opportunity, the land of the free, the home of the brave. The Statue of Liberty was originally erected inside the courtyard of the star-shaped walls of Fort Wood. It was later then moved from Fort Wood to Bedloe's Island in the upper reaches of New York Bay. Later the name was changed to Ellis Island, that gateway to immigration for so many who came to America. Now she resides on Liberty Island, for Ellis Island has been renamed Again, But the question that you must ask yourself is why, why did they move her from the shoreline of New York City? For after all, it's now Fort Wood designated as a national monument. You see, New York City began to grow, astronomically grow. Tall buildings began to be erected until finally the statue that symbolized the heart of America was being overshadowed by tall buildings, skyscrapers, monuments to men's personal success and greed. So the city commissioners of New York decided to move her from the shore of New York Island to Bedloe's Island in Upper New York Bay. For they declared in the minutes of the city council this statute, nothing should ever overshadow the sacred statue. If you were to travel to the city of Boston, there is an ordinance there protecting the commons where the seeds of the American Revolution were fermenting. And that ordinance protects the open spaces, those historic and sacred places from all shadows. For the ordinance reads, buildings cannot be constructed that will prevent sunlight from hitting these historic or sacred places. Move to the southwest, you'll find Proposition K, passed years ago in San Antonio. The city ordinance limits the building's heights to a particular restriction. They cannot cast shadows over open spaces. In fact, the Hyatt Hotel had to be revised and changed in its construction because it cast a shadow on the Alamo. The old mission where 
that armies of dictator Santa Ana and those ragtag forces of the newly formed Republic of Texas stood in opposition. Gettysburg, the same, no shadows. Concord, the same, no shadows. For nothing should cast darkness over the hallowed sacrifices given on those pieces of land. In our nation's capital city, Washington, D.C., no building is permitted that would mar the view of the U.S. Capitol. The simple rule is this. Nothing should cast a shadow over sacred places, hallowed places, sacrifices, and landmarks where personal commitments and sacrifices have been laid down for they mandate their own place in the sun. So gaze with me deep into the well of Scripture and focus on this simple point in the context of our reading. Thou shalt not plant thee a grove of any trees near unto the altar of the Lord thy God which thou shalt make thee. Deuteronomy is the rehearsal of the law. It is the practical application of God's commandments. Moses is walking God's people back through all that God has done for them and what is required and expected of them. Deuteronomy is filled with insightful and thought-provoking admonitions. For example, Deuteronomy 22 teaches God's people that when you build a house in the promised land, build the house with a paraffin wall around the outside, a battlement upon the roof, so that when the enemy comes, and he will come, you can defend your possession against him. So that as the children play upon the rooftop, they will be protected from accidentally falling and being injured. It is the practical application of God's commandments. Deuteronomy 20 says that when God's people are taking a city, conquering new ground, cut down any tree you like, for ladder works or siege works, cut down any tree, but don't touch the fruit trees. The practical application. Because you may win the battle, but if you cut down the fruit trees, it takes generations for them to produce fruit again. So don't let the moment rob you of the eternal. And we find in our text the same type of principle. No altar to God Jehovah should ever have trees planted near it. Now it's odd, for in one commandment, they're commanded, don't cut down any fruit trees, cut down any other tree you want, but leave the fruit trees. And yet in this passage, they're commanded specifically, plant no trees or groves of trees anywhere near the altar. So what's the lesson? Is it that fire breaks are necessary? Open spaces so that when the wind blows That there would be strips of land Free of combustible material So that when you're sacrificing on the altar It doesn't get out of control And although that sounds great That's not actually the reason So is it perhaps that Altars are supposed to be Under open skies Sacrifice made Where the sweet smelling savor of incense Can ascend to God For Abel made an altar under an open sky and Abraham built an an altar under an open sky and so did Elijah. They offered sacrifices to God under the heavens. 
in the tabernacle, later in the temple, the brazen altar stood outside of the covered court so that the smoke as it ascended was not prohibited or inhibited from reaching God, that that sweet-smelling savor. So perhaps the foliage prevents the smoke from ascending in that sweet-smelling savor to our Savior. But no, that's not the reason. For you see, an altar in the Old Testament and the New is symbolic of man reaching for his God. A passageway from heaven to earth. A doorway from here to there. A place where God meets us, where sacrifice is made, where blessings come, where consecrations are offered, commitments are given, consecrations established. That's an altar. And very simply... Nothing should ever cast a shadow over your worship. Nothing should ever cast a shadow over your commitment to God. Nothing should ever bring darkness over your disciplines established between you and God. Let me make it very clear. At some point, most people seek God. Even the most agnostic and atheistic amongst us reach places in our lives where we feel the need to connect. Sometimes just in case. In fact, years ago when Joseph Stalin's daughter defected to America, when her plane landed in the United States of America, she held a press conference. And the statement she made was the explanation for leaving Russia. She said, I found it impossible to exist without God in one's heart. Pascal, he said it this way, every person is a God-shaped Vacuum, And he's right. Within all of us, there is a void. Money can't fill. Relationships can't fill. Success can't fill. Only God fills it. We were created to be inhabited by God's own presence. Jean-Paul Sartre, perhaps one of the most famous atheists of the 20th century, in his writings, he argues this principle, that existence precedes essence. In other words, we are what we make ourselves to be. We need no one else, no creator, no divine origin. We are what we make ourselves. Yet... At the end of his storied career of inflammatory remarks toward God. At the end of his life, Jean-Paul Sartre told Peter Victor in an interview, I do not feel I'm the product of chance. I am not a speck of dust in the universe, but someone who was expected prepared, prefigured, in short. I am a being whom only a creator could put here. Uh, Understand. He goes on and says, and this idea of a creating hand directly refers to God. Deep within the heart of mankind is a desire to connect with something bigger than them. To know that there is a reason for why we exist. uh, That there is a purpose uh, to all the chaos with which we endure. And there is no other adequate explanation for the humanity found within us than someone greater than us. uh, Someone greater than the sum total of us created us. uh, Ephesians 2 and 10. uh, We have not made ourselves. uh, We are not of ourselves. We are His workmanship. He made us. Not us. And the one who gives us breath 
prompts us to praise Him. The one who gives us voice challenges us to cry out to Him. The one who gives us hands waits with longing for us to reach out to Him. In the altars, in the Old Testament altars were man's way of reaching out for God. On Mount Moriah, Abraham built an altar in opposition to what seemed the nature of his God. And he trudged up a dusty mountain with his child in tow. A boy intelligent enough to understand the ramifications of sacrifice. Daddy, daddy, where is the sacrifice? Daddy, where is the lamb? Daddy, daddy, where is he? Uh, He understood we've got the wood, we have the knife, uh, we have the fire. But dad, dad, where is the sacrifice? Uh, But as uh, Abraham laid his boy down upon that altar, what he thought would be an altar of Death, uh, an altar of despair Became an altar of victory Favor and blessings Uh, Don't overlook the altars in your life No wonder Abraham stepped back And said Jehovah Jireh My God provides For while he was trudging up a mountain There was a ram caught in a thicket uh, On the backside of the hill Uh, uh, Don't despise the altar in your life Uh, They're not just death, they're life Uh, They're not just to spare their healing at Bethel Jacob made an altar of stones and poured oil upon him and there he made a vow to God to change his life and there in his way he worshipped and remember the book of Exodus The exit from the tyranny of 400 years of slavery does not begin with plagues. It does not begin with the Nile River. The God they worshipped, Hopi, whom they said brings all life and God turned to blood to represent death. It was a systematic undermining of their belief system in false gods. But it did not begin with God's challenge against the Egyptian hierarchy of false idolatry. But the exodus began with a desire to worship. With a desire to connect to Jehovah. To reconnect to the God of their past. The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And Pharaoh let them go into the wilderness and worship. And there they built altars. And when altars were built in the wilderness, deliverance came. 400 years of tyranny broken in a matter of weeks. Because when you worship God at the altar, miracles happen. There is always an altar between man's world and God's world. The writer of Hebrews looks back at the history of the Old Testament. And as with everything else in the Old Testament, he declares it clearly. What we have is better. The altar we have is better. The connection to God we have is better. An altar. They're non-negotiable. Non-debatable. You must have them. For an altar identifies us with the God we serve. Our commitments... Our consecrations, our convictions, our sacrifices, our victories, our abundance. An altar. It is indicative of you reaching for the God you serve. And in turn, God changes us. So Moses prophesies 
in Deuteronomy. You will build altars. You will build them in recognition to the goodness of God. For it is not you who brought yourself from Egypt, but it is God. So when you come into the promised land of abundance, build your altars and give thanks. But Moses understood the human possibility that some would have it both ways. That some would build an altar to give thanks and nearby they would plant a grove of trees and the trees would cast a shadow over the altar. But nothing, nothing, nothing should ever cast a shadow over your experience with God. Thou shalt not plant a grove. That's the writer. That's what the word said. Forty separate times in the King James, translators use the word in the Hebrew, Asherah, to translate the word grove. Asherah. You say, well, what, what, why, what is that the significance? What is Asherah? You see, Asherah was worshipped as a Canaanite goddess. Mockingly. The Canaanites worshipped her as the consort of Jehovah, the lover of your God. And by worshipping Asherah, they were insisting, your God is not complete in and of himself. But he needs something outside of himself to make him whole. He needs something outside of himself to make him complete. To give him pleasure. For he is not the sum total of all things. But he needs someone else to bring pleasure and derive satisfaction from. Asherah was worshipped exclusively in high places. Asherah was worshipped exclusively In groves of trees planted in her name. Asherah, her image, was carved into the trees. And in the shadow of the trees dedicated to Asherah under the idol image of that woman, any vice known to man could be practiced. Asherah, or Ishtar, the queen of heaven in Babylon circles. She was the goddess, hear me, of fertility, harvest, love, and pleasure. And it was in the shadow of those trees. Man and woman lost their inhibitions, their morality, and their restraint. And Moses told the people of God, God gave you this land, and you will make sacrifices. And God commands that you have a sacred duty, an obligation. Build an altar in recognition of God's blessings and continue to give sacrifice in honor to God. But don't let a shadow fall across your worship. Don't plant something near your altar that can obscure God's presence. Don't allow your pursuit of sustenance, commerce, security, provision, family. 
Don't allow your desire for increase. Don't allow your hope for companionship. Don't look in your lust. Don't let your love, pleasure, or your recreation cast a shadow on your sacrifice to God. Because if a shadow falls across the altar, any old spirit can come in. Any old demonic influence can undermine your worship. I don't know about you. I'm going to cut some things down. I'm not going to let anything overshadow my relationship with God that was the commandment and it's still valid today don't let your desire to have a connection with other people to multiply your bank account to have success in this world don't you let it overshadow your commitment to God we have beautiful buildings Million dollar structures, unbelievable campuses. We have talented singing. We have gifted individuals. We have good preaching. We have programs for youth, programs for children, programs for singles, programs for students. But don't you allow social interaction to be why you come to the house of God. Don't you allow a connection socially, an emotional connection to another human being, be the reason you darken these doors. I don't come to shake your hand. I come to build an altar and connect to God. I don't come to hear you sing. I don't come to worship with you I can do that at home by myself but I come to find an altar I come to make a sacrifice I come to lay something down I come to die to my flesh and rise in God's favor let your worship out right now Go ahead, go ahead. You ought to talk about what shadows. You ought to let your mind free from the restraints of composure and say no more darkness in my worship. I don't know why you're here, but I'm here to be touched by God. I don't know why you're here. I'm here for God to be Jehovah Jireh, my provider. And oftentimes seeing him as provision means climbing up a dusty mountain in direct opposition to what you feel like is right. But your spiritual success will begin and end at an altar. Abraham, the father of the faithful in Genesis 12 and 13, constructed four altars. Each of those altars represented a desire to please God and not he himself. The first altar... It was an altar of promise in Genesis 12. And in that altar, Abraham, he declared, I left Ur of Chaldees. I walked away from all I knew in my family. I'm not looking at other things. I trust you to take care of me. I don't know where I'm going, but I'm going with you, God. You'll give me the wisdom I need to make it through the day, to keep putting one foot in front of the other. I'm not fearful of the future. I'm not fearful of the years that threaten to pass me by. And fear is a powerful thing. We are living and growing in a world that's telling us we're never enough. That we have to prove our worth and demonstrate our value on a daily basis. 
And social media only complicates this idea. We're more concerned about who likes what in our lives uh, than whether or not we have God's approval and whether or not we've been to an altar. Let let, let me make it very plain. I'll make it very clear. No one lives like the highlight reel of Instagram. Nobody eats like that every day. Nobody takes vacations like that every day. Nobody raises their kids just right. But we're so influenced on whether we measure up to someone we've never met. We buy cars to impress people We'll never know their name We live in houses And never cross the street to meet our neighbors But make sure the lawn's mowed So they're not ashamed of who we are I refuse to live my life uh, trying to gain the acceptance of this society for how futile is that effort. I want God's acceptance. Uh, I want to meet God at an altar and have the power of the Spirit fall. Our souls are designed to be filled with God. But all too often they're being filled with devils and dust and distraction. I'm coming to believe that fear is at the heart of all sin and disaffection. Fear that God will never be enough. Fear that the identity I've been given in God is somehow incomplete. And we're living in a world that so many people tell us, you have so much to be afraid of. And we're taught fear rejection, fear other people. Fear strangers, fear germs, fear the world, fear death, fear the future, fear the government, fear the devil, fear hereditary disease, fear infirmity, fear the doctor report, and the forces that the Apostle Paul calls principality and powers, they're dominating us through fears. And fear is difficult to discern. For fear always comes cloaked in the language of responsibility. Of course you should be afraid. It only makes sense to be cautious. The world's a dangerous place. Be careful where you go. But the more conscious we become of our fears, hear me, the more mindful we are to be cautious and the less room faith has to blossom. The more we try to protect ourselves, the less I am able to operate in apostolic boldness. For they knew that they were unlearned and ignorant men, but they marveled and said, These men have been with Jesus. Three men cast into the fire, but they declared, Our God will not fail us. Daniel phoned in the lion's den, but he said, No, my God will be proven true. When we protect ourselves from what we fear, we undermine our capacity for wonder and hope. And hope is the genesis of faith. For what we hope, for what we hope, faith finds reason to believe. Becoming an adult in this culture seems to be synonymous with being made perfect in fear. And the older we get, the more fragile we feel. The more we feel we have something to lose. And the more precarious our future seems. You don't act like you believe me. 
You used to drive 85, 90, and 95 down the highway. You don't anymore. Because now you tell yourself, I'm more responsible. I I don't want to get a ticket and I understand. And I have a family and kids to take care of. And I can't be incapacitated. And although that responsible language may be accurate, it's undermining our ability to dream. And imagination and wonder and joy and creativity are becoming endangered species on every day. Because we're so preoccupied with what we fear, we don't even notice it's happening. And when we reach for something other than God to address those insecurities, shadows fall across our altar. When we reach for something uh, to assuage the pain in our body besides God, shadows fall over your altar. Uh, When you begin to reach for a counselor or a psychologist rather than an altar, shadows are falling over your uh, altar. It's got its place. Uh, Counseling has its place. uh, But there is no replacement for an apostolic altar where sin dies, uh, where commitments are made, uh, where worship is established. Sixty-three percent of all adults over 40 years old are on a prescription antidepressant. Right now, don't tell me fear isn't dominating our culture. And the enemy laughs his way all the way to the pharmaceuticals company. You hear me? The first epistle of St. John is very clear. He makes this simple statement. God is love. And you all said amen. God is love. But it also says perfect love casteth out fear. And he who fears has not been made perfect in love. And he who fears is not made perfect in love. The language is clear. The language is succinct and direct. If God is love, and if perfect love casts out fear, then fear is the opposite everything God is. And if perfect love casts out fear, then perfect fear must also cast out love. It's no wonder we can't love other people. We're filled with fear. It's no wonder we can't get past racial divides. We're too full of fear. It's no wonder our country's divided. We're too full of fear. Simply put, fear will kick God out of your life. And I refuse to let the enemy and the 24-hour news cycle and the media that won't stop undermine my ability to believe God is my provider. God is my source. God orders my steps. I can leave our Chaldees and walk in faith. I said it to Pastor John's last week. I married my wife. I was 26 years old. She was 21 years old. I had a Ford Explorer. I'd spend every dime I had on the honeymoon. I had three months of revivals. We packed her clothes in the back of the car and drove off to about four or five revivals booked. And I can't believe her daddy let me go. You know why? Because there's no way I'd let a boy do that to my daughter because I'm afraid. Because I've been so conditioned. you got to have money. you got to have it paid off. And somewhere along the way we're forgetting that God is the source of all things good. That God can take care of us. That I wish I had a young person back from Youth Congress who said I'm willing to lay it all down on the altar and do whatever calling God has for me. I'll go anywhere. I'll say anything. I'll do anything. I wish I had a parent that would pray a prayer again. How long is it been since you laid in the altar said God I'll go I'll do whatever you say 
second altar. Abraham built an altar of relationship. Abraham wasn't just expressing his trust in God. Abraham purposed to walk with God. 1 John declares God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. And if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. I refuse to let a shadow fall across my walk with God. I I refuse to let a shadow overtake my altar experience. It's all about him. It's relationship. And our God is a jealous God. And he will share his glory with none else. It's the first prayer meeting. It's the first altar experience. Adam meets God in the cool of the day on a consistent basis. And I've often wondered what happened at their altar. No people to pray about. No disease to pray about. No news cycle. No social media rejection to pray about. No anger. No unforgiveness. No bitterness. No jealousy. What was their cool of the day about? It was about relationship. Knowledge. Impartation. Empowerment. Freedom, get us back to an altar that is unrestrained by the difficulties of this life. Let me make it plain. God is not jealous of anything. God can't be jealous. Because God owns all things. Every blade of grass, every molecule of air, every tree, every branch, every bee, every ant, every person. God owns it all. So God is not jealous as our understanding of human jealousy is. For our understanding of jealousy is a derivative of pride. But the creator is jealous for everything. Because everything belongs to him. There's not a square inch in the whole domain of existence that God doesn't say, that's mine, that's mine, that's mine, they're mine, those are mine, that over there is mine, the stars are mine, the galaxies are mine, the constellations are mine, that person's mine, your kids are mine, your grandkids are mine. Everything was created by God for God For his exclusive use And there has never been anyone like you There will never be anyone like you And that's not a testament to you That is a testament to the God who created you That's not a tip of the hat to your uniqueness That's a tip of the hat to God's creativity No one can worship God like you or for you You are absolutely irreplaceable And God's jealous for every fiber of your being. Every thought, every dream, every desire, every word, every moment. God's jealous for them. For he is the one that causes your synapses to fire. What were we singing? It's your breath. I heard it. I heard that preposition couched in that phrase. It's your breath, God. Not my breath, your breath. I don't own it. I didn't buy it. I don't deserve it. I can't pay for it. It's your air. It's your molecules. It's your oxygen and nitrogen. It's yours. I wish you'd let some of God's air out right now in worship. God's the dream giver. He's the healer of our bodies, the rescuer of our souls, the forgiver of our sins, the sustenance in the night, the peace in the storm. He's the one that conceives the dreams in your heart in the dark of the night. He's the one who measures your day. It's all from him and for him. That's why God settles for nothing less than all you have to give. 
And that's why God is jealous. Exodus 34 calls one of his names. And it's almost as if he has double jealousy. Because there are 400 names of God. And each of those names throughout the word reveal the character and the dimension of his being. One of those names is revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai. Do not worship any other God. Can I quote it in Deuteronomy? Thou shalt not plant a grove or any tree over the altar. Don't worship any other God. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. It's like the writer wanted to make sure you knew. Not only is his name Jealous, he is Jealous. And when God says something more than once, you need to think about it twice. You don't belong to God one time. You belong to God two times. Once by virtue of creation and twice by virtue of redemption. I am his because of creation. He knew me in my mother's womb. But I am his in that second birth. When I was forgiven of my sins. Baptized in Jesus name. Filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. Tell your neighbor, say, you don't owe God one life. You owe God two lives. And that's why God is doubly jealous. Third altar Abraham builds is an altar of no return. For earlier, Abraham had returned to Egypt, but he made God a promise. I'm never going back. I'm not turning around. I'm not quitting, I'm not giving up, and I'm not surrendering. Oh, what would happen today if some individuals approached this altar and said, today at the altar I'm making a declaration, no looking back, no turning around, no giving up, no failing, no walking away, no surrender. No holding Egypt with one hand and holding Cain in the other. There's an altar in my life, God. I've built the stones up, made the sacrifice. Determine it. Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of stew. Samson sold his secret for a one-night stand. Judas sold his soul for 30 pieces of silver. What are they thinking? Nothing is more illogical than sin. It's the epitome of poor judgment. Sin is temporary insanity with eternal consequences. And there is no alibi... Except Jesus Christ on the cross. Sin is not worth it and we all know it, yet we do it. And no matter how we slice it, sin always leaves us with the short end of the stick. For sin always overpromises and underdelivers. You'd be cool smoking this cigarette. But he never told us about lung cancer. He never told us about larynx cancer. He never told us we'd die uh, writhing in a bed that medicine couldn't answer. Uh, We'll look real good tipping back a brewski. We'll look real good being drunk on a bar stool. Uh, But he never told us our livers would die. Our marriage would break apart. Because sin always over promises and under delivers. Fourth, Abraham built an altar of possession. He said, you made me a promise. And I will possess it. 
I'll have all your promises you've given me. I'll have everything you declared. And if you want God to do something off the chart, you got to take your hands off the wheels. You got to build an altar and you got to declare if God is for me, who can be against me? For His name is the solution to every problem. His name is the answer to every dilemma. His name calms every fear. His name rebukes every devil. His name demands sickness to be eradicated. His name. It's not about who you are. It's about who he is. Who we are is absolutely irrelevant. God doesn't use us because of us. He uses us in spite of us. And heaven is not going to go bankrupt if we quit. And the creator doesn't need us to network for him. And if you take your talents and go elsewhere, the kingdom of God is not going to fold and go under. But for reasons that I don't understand that will only be revealed on the other side of the time and space continuum, God likes using people. And when people build altars, God uses people. Altars. They represent repentance. It represents the death of self. Altars. We declare he must increase and I decrease. And altars is where we cry, not my will, but thine be done. Altars is where we weep tears of sorrow. And altars are where we cry with shouts of joy. It's where we wrestle with heaven until the morning breaks. And we leave with a new name. And a change in our posture and our walk. Altars is where we pray through till whatever is bothering us is broken. No shadows on our altars today. No shadows. The book of Judges is when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's what the writer declared. And in the book of Judges, the angel of the Lord finds Gideon. And he is hiding behind the wine press, threshing grain. For the Midianites have oppressed the land for 200 years and they're attacking again. The Midianites, they owned no crops nor cattle. They survived off their marauding. They stole from others. They took the substance and the sustenance from other people who were disciplined and worked hard. Yet the reason for the oppression, it wasn't far from Gideon. It was in the high places above the winepress. Groves were planted to worship Asherah by Israelites. Statues for Baal. And once Gideon was convinced that God spoke to him. Before he recruits an army. Gideon heads up the mountain with an axe in his hand. And begins to systematically dismantle the grove of trees erected in honor of Asherah. He began to clean out the sin in the camp of Israel. And then God says, all right, take. He says, I got 30,000. He said, you don't need 30. I'll just take 300. And with 300 men, they surround the camp of the Meradian Midianites. With a lamp of God, the light of the world in a glass. And as they surround it... They stand and they break that glass and shout. The sword of the Lord and Gideon is here. And 200 years of oppression are broken. 
in one night. And if you were to study your Bible closely, the Midianites are never an enemy of Israel again. When there's no shadow on your altar, there's power and confidence with God. When there's no shadow on your altar, you can pray a prayer of faith in a hospital room without worry of rejection or embarrassment or shame. When there's no shadow on your altar, you can witness to someone you've been working with without the fear of failure. When there's no shadow on the altar, God will take your insignificant number and bring unlikely deliverance. When you cut down the trees, God will take insufficient giftings and empower you to do a work for God when you cut down the trees God will take insufficient funds and pay your bills God will take insufficient bloodstream and build up your immunity and you won't get sick I wish I had a believer who said let's cut down some trees let's get rid of some things and let God show off You cut down the shadows and God will give you blessings you're unqualified for. You don't deserve. You don't merit. You didn't earn. And God will give you things you never thought possible. Paul said it. 2 Timothy 2 and 13. Paul said it this way. And I like this part. Paul says, if we believe not, yet he abideth faithful. For he cannot deny himself. But let's look back for a moment at 2 Chronicles 7 and 14. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then, then, then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sins, and heal their land. If we ever needed a land healing, it's right now. If we ever needed sins forgiven, it's right now. If my people will call on my name, which are called by name, will humble themselves, pray, seek my face, call on my name, turn from their ways, if you'll build altars, then I'll hear. I'll save. I'll forgive. I'll heal. I'll deliver. What was it Paul said? Paul said in 2 Timothy, if we believe not, yet he abideth faithful. He cannot deny himself. You see, Paul declares through the trials and tragedies of my life, the scourgings, the whippings, the shipwrecks, the lost, the abandoned, the loneliness, the frustrations, the pain, in f- trouble with my own countrymen, in trouble with my own brethren, in trouble by strangers, I learned this. If I'm faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot Disown himself. Simply put, it means this. God cannot disregard his own interest. God cannot prove false to his identity. God cannot act entirely unlike himself. Just as you cannot be you. Just as you're you, no matter how hard you try not to be you, you're still you. God is God, no matter what you think God is. God is always God. And the one of the fundamental aspects of the God you're worshiping is that God is faithful. He cannot lie. He keeps His word. He keeps His promises. And if my people that are called by my name would humble themselves and pray, if they would repent, seek my face, then I will heal. It's not an if. It's not a maybe. 
it's a guarantee for God cannot disregard his own abilities and God is faithful he can be nothing but unfaithful he cannot be unfaithful so that's why we base our faith on the unchangeableness of God. Our faith may fail, but God's faithfulness, God's reliability, God's stability, God's answers, God's surety will always remain. For he said, I'll never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. No wonder David wrote the words, If I make my bed in hell, thou art there. And if I ascend into the heavens, thou art there. If I grab the wings and fly to the morning, you're there too. If I go to the darkness of night, you're there. I can't get away from you. You're present everywhere. I don't base my faith on God's deliverance uh, on what God's done for you I base my faith for God's deliverance on who God is Uh, it's not based on your testimonies exclusively it's not based on what you tell me God's done what I've seen with my eyes my faith uh, is established in the reality of God's faithfulness for God cannot be unfaithful someone in this house today Cut down a few trees and watch the miraculous of God arrive. Cut down a few trees and watch God's miraculous plan show up and take you. Inferior, outnumbered, overwhelmed. And God give a victory that breaks the tyranny of years off your family. 200 years of Midianite oppression. Broken in a moment because Gideon said no more worship to pleasure, lust, love. No more worship to those things. They can't cast a shadow on our God. Stand to your feet and let your worship out right now. Let it out. Come on, is there a worshiper in this house? Is there a worshiper in this house? Let it go, let it go, let it go. There's healing in this house today. There's deliverance in this house today. There's freedom from despair, depression, anger, loneliness, hereditary generational curses. There's free from infirmity and sickness. But not because I pray for you. Not because the preachers lay hands on you. But because you create a space in which to worship the Lord. Because you take the shadows off your worship, your commitment, your sacrifice, and your dedication. Elijah, confronted by 450 prophets of Baal aligned against one man. But not just 450 prophets of Baal. 400 prophets of Asherah, 850 aligned against one man's worship. And Elijah is specific. We can't worship Baal and Asherah and God. We can only worship God. And let the God who answers by fire be revealed to be true. And as he prayed and worshipped in an altar under an open sky, without a tree or a grove nearby, the fire fell. And before God was finished, 850 false representatives of Baal and Asherah were gone. And days, moments later, 
three and a half years of drought was broken. And some of you are fighting a spirit of drought. It's an enemy you can't see, but you can feel the effects of it. It's, it you, can't, you can't put your hand on it. You can't see it, but you can feel it. And it takes the taste out of your life. But the Lord said, cut down the trees, cut down the groves, get rid of the false prophets, and I'll break the drought. I'll run off the Midianites. I'll heal your body. I'll save your land. I'll forgive your sins. If you're ready to cut down some trees today, if you're ready to create a space around the altar to worship God again, would you come to this altar right now? Before I lead you in prayer, why don't you do it all on your own right now? Just cut down some trees. Create some space. Yeah, filter in for me right here. Take a step or so closer to the front. There's many coming. I want the power of God. I want His deliverance, His authority, His dominion. But first, I have to create space. Room. You can't have a grove at an altar. And there is always power when nothing overshadows your altar. There you go all over this house. You're talking to Jesus Christ right now. Oh, yeah, on your own. You're taking inventory, introspection. You're looking deep right now. Beautiful. Oh, that's beautiful. If my people called by my name would humble themselves and pray, seek my face, then I'll hear, then I'll heal, then I'll save. Yeah, let it grow, church. Let it grow in intensity. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. There you go. Old-fashioned altars right now. Old-fashioned apostolic repentance. Old-fashioned apostolic prayer right now. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Nothing in our lives, God, is more important than you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.
Let me have your attention. For just a moment, let's pray together as a community of believers. Because I believe if we'll pray, and we will collectively take care of some things, I believe God will do a miracle like He did for Gideon. Unprecedented. Indescribable. Something that's hard to articulate or even fathom with our human reasoning. God will do a miracle bigger than us that we can't describe. Some of you, God will heal your bodies right now. Others, you'll receive the gift of the Spirit today. Others, the despair and fear that has gripped you, God's going to take it off your soul today. Does anyone believe it's possible? Raise your hands just like this with me. Close those eyes. We're going to... Take care of some things. We're going to repent. Say it with me. Say, Jesus, forgive me. I surrender to you and your will. I surrender my will, my thoughts, my ideas. Forgive me, my stubbornness. My pursuit of self, satisfaction, and appeasement. Forgive my distraction. Forgive my doubt. Forgive my unbelief. And forgive me the fear that manipulates my faith. Forgive me the actions, the thoughts, the attitudes. That cast shadows over my worship. Forgive my preservation of self. Forgive the way I think of myself. Forgive me for seeking the approval of others. More than I seek your approval. Forgive me Jesus. Forgive my nature. My desires. Forgive my lust. My thoughts. My attitudes, forgive me, the worship of a share. Forgive me for letting shadows fall across my altars. It's you I serve. It's you I submit to. It's only you I worship. I surrender all. I give you myself. Forgive my sins. Save me from them. And save me from myself. I raise my hands. I'm cutting down the groves. I'm worshiping you in purity. In the name of Jesus. Oh, show yourself in my life, God. Drive off the Midianites. Break the drought. Heal my body. Free my family. Remove the depression. In the name of Jesus, that's it. Pray. Receive your forgiveness and receive the gift of the Holy Ghost 